0: On the screen I have a photograph of a giant menorah that is located in Israel. And you can't see it from the picture that I have. I wish I had a zoomed in photograph of the different candlesticks of this menorah. But there are depictions and carvings of critical moments in Israel's history. And one of them in the center menorah are the Tables of stone that are engraved there symbolizing when Moses received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Now, at the base of the menorah are the Hebrew words Shema Israel. And so you have this structure, by the way, this is located in the holy place of the sanctuary, representing the Christian light and the burning of the candlesticks, representing the Holy Spirit in our lives. And at the base of this structure are the words Shema Israel, indicating and implying that at the base of keeping our Christian experience going is the Shema. Now the Shema is familiar to the faithful Israelites in Jewish history. The Shema has been described as a central watchword of Jewish faith. For centuries, Jews have pronounced this single sentence, affirming God's unity as their final words before dying, as well as beginning and ending each day with this prayer on their lips. So the Jews in Israelite history would get up in the morning and would say the Shema. Before they went to bed at night, they would say the Shema. And according to Jewish tradition, before they died, the last words they would say is the Shema. Now, what is the Shema? Turn with me in your Bibles and let's read it in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Deuteronomy was written by Moses, and here it is. in Deuteronomy chapter six verse four, you have the words of the Shema, what every faithful Jew would say when they got up in the morning, before what they went to bed at night, and on their deathbed, "Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul." And with all your strength. What a way to begin each and every day. Amen? To say, Lord, you're one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And I think this is a good tradition to follow. Amen? The Jews would say this in the morning. As they got up and before they went to bed at night, they would say the Shema, and it goes on, write these commandments that I've been given you today on your hearts, get them inside of you, then get them inside of your children, talk about them wherever you are, sitting at home or walking the streets, talk about them from the time you get up in the morning to when you fall into bed at night. So the Bible says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the Bible describes what that looks like. It's one thing to believe it in theory, loving God with all your heart, but this is what it looks like in a practical sense. You talk about it throughout your day. Talk about it to your children while you're in the streets. You talk about the love of Jesus Christ. And when I would sell books door to door... I would have to become a conversationalist. You ever have those awkward moments when you're sitting next to someone on the airplane and you're talking with the individual? Some people are very easy to talk to, but others are very difficult. One-word responses. And if you're like me, you're an introvert, so the less that is said, the better. I just put on my earphones, and I'm just like, please don't talk to me. I mean, that's just my natural nature. But sometimes you get into conversation, and there is an art to conversation. We love to talk about ourselves, but the art of conversation is to get the other individual to talk about what they are passionate about. All of us are passionate about something. All of us have something that just... Infuses emotion within us. We have an opinion about this thing, or we love to talk about this thing. And so there would be times when I would be at a door and someone would come to the door. I remember this one lady in Arkansas, she came to the door with, with a puppy. And I just scrapped my canvas. You know, we have a canned canvas that we're supposed to say. And I just reached out and I petted the puppy. I asked her what she fed the puppy. I asked her how much the pet puppy kept her up at night, and she just waxed eloquent and glowed about that puppy, talked about the puppy, and just went on and on. It was about 10 minutes just talking about the puppy, and you know what she said? She said, whatever you're doing, son, I'm buying. <laughs> Handed $20 over, I gave her a cookbook, and I said, praise the Lord. Walked in another garage. There was a man working on a project. Woodworking project, and I just followed him around that garage for five to seven minutes, asked him about the project, and he just waxed eloquent, glowed about the project, went on and on and on about the project. We were just talking about woodworking. He didn't even ask about my books. I didn't talk about my books. I talked about what he was passionate about, and he said, son, whatever it is you're selling, I'm buying. What are you passionate about? And according to Deuteronomy chapter 6, The implication of what it's saying is that the thing that you love the most, you love to talk about the most. Amen? The thing that you love the most is the thing or entity or the person that you love to talk about the most. And everyone is into something nowadays. I have this acquaintance of ours that's really into this nutritional shake. It's changed her life. She gives a testimonial. She's running marathons now, by the way. And she goes on social media and gives a public testimony about how this shake has changed her life. And she's selling it. It's this multi-level marketing, but she's a believer. She's really into this nutritional shake. And I believe, friends, that as Christians, we should be into Jesus. Amen? We should love to talk about Jesus. If you love Jesus, you will love to talk about him. And the Bible goes on in this passage in Deuteronomy. It says that if you love God, you'll love to talk about him. But also in verse 8, it says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now, here's a modern translation. It says, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. And during the time of Jesus, they took this very legalistically. The Pharisees would go around with segments of the law that would be tied to their arms and and literally tied to their foreheads. But God was not referring to the literal tying of the law to their foreheads, and we can see what God meant when God spoke to Joshua. Joshua 1, verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall do what? You shall meditate on it day and night. This is a biblical principle. In other words, if you love Jesus, you will love to talk about him, and you will love to Think about him, and here is this concept of meditation that comes into play. And remember the menorah. The foundation of the menorah, according to Jewish tradition, was the Shema. And the Shema says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. You will love to talk about him, and you will love to think about him all day long. It's foundational to the Christian experience, and I believe that it's foundational to victory over sin. Now, when we think about this concept of meditation... Considering that meditation is foundational to the Christian experience, it's foundational to Christian life, we know that for every truth, there is also a counterfeit. And so it would not be surprising that there is a biblical form of meditation, and there is a form of meditation that is not biblical. Now, I'd like to go back in our history books a little bit as we look at the history of meditation In Christian tradition, during the time of the Reformation, the Reformation principles of righteousness by faith were sweeping over Western Europe. And there was a dramatic power shift that took place over Western Europe as these countries like Germany and England and Switzerland all fell like dominoes and took their stand with Protestantism. It was a very difficult time for the papacy and for Catholicism because there was a transfer of power that was taking place. And as the Pope was sitting forlorn in his palace, a group of men sought his audience. And at the head was a priest, a Spanish priest, by the name of Ignatius Leola, and he said that he wanted to bring Protestantism back under the fold of Catholicism. And here was born the Counter-Reformation. It's in your history books. The Counter-Reformation was to counter the work of Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, and to bring Protestantism back. Now, the way that the Jesuit order, which was founded by Ignatius Leola, the Society of Jesus, The primary means of bringing them back was through education. And here is Malachi Martin, a Jesuit priest. He was one of the advisors to Pope John Paul II, and he wrote the New York Times bestseller, The Keys of This Blood. He wrote another book called The Jesuits, and this is from page 27. There was no continent the Jesuits did not reach. No known language they did not speak and study or in scores of cases developed. No culture they did not penetrate. No branch of learning and science they did not explore. No work in humanism, in arts, in popular education they did not undercate and do better than anyone else. Here's a Jesuit just coming out and saying like, look, the mode of the counter-reformation was to make sure that the Jesuit order was everywhere. And here he comes out openly and states that this was indeed done. Ignatius Leola, the founder of the Jesuit order, stated in regards to the training of the Jesuits, imbue him with spiritual forces, which he would find very difficult to eliminate later. So the Jesuit order was to have at the forefront of its agenda the Counter-Reformation to bring Protestantism back and the training of the Jesuit priest, according to Ignatius Leola, was to be a particular training that would be almost impossible to remove. And here it is from Malachi Martin in the book The Jesuits. He says, Priests who joined this group underwent strenuous initiation. For weeks at a time, they maintained absolute silence, Under the skilled supervision of a director, they practiced a form, and I have it in italics here, a form of mystical meditation until each of them emerged from that week's long regimen as a spiritual fighter, completely won over to warfare, utterly obedient servant of the Pope. One of the means in which the Jesuits trained Their soldiers, in the Counter-Reformation, according to Malachi Martin, was a form of mystical meditation. Now, there's a book in my library by Richard Foster entitled The Celebration of Discipline. Incidentally, I was given this book as a means of uh, saying that uh, this was a way that you become more spiritual. And I bought a later version, I found it on Amazon.com, a 1978 edition, and by the way, Christianity Today lauded Celebration of Discipline as one of the 10 best books of the 20th century. Now, this is a Protestant book, and it's lauded as one of the best books on spirituality today, and it's the textbook of many spiritual formation classes. And here it is, from the 1978 edition, Richard Foster, and I quote on page 27 and 28, In your imagination, allow your spiritual body shining with light to rise out of your physical body. He's describing an out of body experience. Look back so that you can see yourself lying in the grass and reassure your body that you will return momentarily. Imagine your spiritual self alive and vibrant, rising through the clouds into the stratosphere. Listen quietly. Anticipating the unanticipated, note carefully any instruction given he 's describing spiritualism, the out of body experience, and this is not privy to just this book, but it's extant in eastern forms of of meditation, transcendental meditation and here he describes a Christian practice quote unquote in which you come up out of your body and notice what he says, listen carefully to the instruction that is to be given. And this is at the forefront. Now, this was later removed from later editions, likely because of the protest to these types of exercises. Now, notice what Richard Foster indicates. In Foster's book, Prayer, Finding the Heart's True Home, Foster commends the spiritual exercises of Ignatius Leola, the founder of the Jesuit order, as a school of prayer for us all. Richard Foster, a Quaker, a Protestant, is indicating to go to the practices of Ignatius Loyola, who was at the forefront of the Counter-Reformation to bring Protestantism back, and says, look, we need to go to him for his practices of prayer for us all. Now, this is from Tony Campallo, and I used to listen to Tony Campallo, a prominent evangelical and at, at the forefront of the evangelical Christian coalition and the Christian right here in the United States of America, and I, I want you to notice what Christian, what this Christian author says. He says a theology of mysticism provides some hope for common ground between Christianity and Islam. Both religions have within their histories examples of ecstatic union with God. He goes on. I have learned about this way of having a born-again experience from reading the Catholic mystics, especially the spiritual exercises of Ignatius Leola. Like most Catholic mystics, he developed an intense desire to experience a oneness with God. So here it is, a prominent evangelical saying that he went to Ignatius Leola to figure out spiritualism, or he should say spirituality, which is spiritualism in his estimation. Now, here's from Leonard Sweet, who was listed as one of the top influential Christians of 2010, and he states, mysticism, once cast to the sidelines of Christian tradition, is not situated in postmodernistic culture near the center. In the words of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, Jesuit philosopher, religion dogmatist Karl Renner, the Christian of tomorrow... Will be a what? Will he be a mystic? One who has experienced something, or he will be nothing. Now, I want you to notice the nature of what this new spirituality is doing. This type of new spirituality is a form of unity, according to Tony Campala, between Islam and Christianity, between Protestantism and Catholicism, and this form of mysticism and spirituality is not putting at the forefront the Word of God and theological cognitive reflection, but rather it is subjugating the Word to an experience. Are you following me? And if you know anything about generation X, Y, Z, and the alpha generation, is that what is at the forefront of what these generations are looking for? They're looking for experience. We're looking for experience. My generation is looking for experience. In other words, belonging is more important than believing. It used to be that previous generations, you believe and then you belong, but the new generations are into belonging. In other words, it's about the experience and if the beliefs are secondary to that reality and that notion. But here we have it. The era that we are entering right now is espousing and supporting a type of spirituality that is into an experience that is not cognitive. It is not based on conscience and reason and the intellect, but rather it's based on some sort of ecstatic, out-of-body, transcendental, eastern form of meditation, which very at its very core is going to bring a type of false unity in the end of time. And this new spirituality is pervasive in Christian culture today, as you've seen by by the thought leaders espousing this type of spirituality. Now, I want to read a quotation from our general conference president. In July 2010, at the GC session, he said these words in his sermon and his public address. He said, don't reach out to movements or mega church centers outside the Seventh day Adventist Church which promise you spiritual success based on faulty theology. And notice what he says after that. He says, stay away from non biblical spiritual disciplines or methods of spiritual formation that are rooted in mysticism, such as contemplative prayer, centering prayer, and the emergent church movement in which they are promoted. Now, the question is, why would the General Conference president get up front and warn Adventists about seeking these spiritual disciplines? The implication of his statement is that even Seventh-day Adventists are not immune to this new type of spirituality. In other words, it's in vogue. A non-cognitive reflection, non-cognitive, non-intellectual seeking of an experience that diminishes the word of God and will bridge the chasm between Protestantism and Catholicism. In other words, the way that the Counter-Reformation will bring Protestantism back is to diminish this. Is to diminish this and say there's a new form of spirituality that's grounded in experience. But not the Word of God. Now, I want to read from Revelation chapter 16, verse 13 and 14. And I want you to notice the convergence of forces in the end of time. This is prophetic, and I believe that it's taking place before our very eyes. Revelation chapter 16, verse 13 and 14. And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, coming out of the mouth of the dragon. Now, these frogs indicate spiritualism. If you go back to the book of Exodus, these frogs and the implications scholars believe that these three unclean spirits like frogs is spiritualism, all right? It says, comes out of the mouth of the dragon, who's Satan, out of the mouth of the beast, who's the papacy, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. According to scholars, this is apostate Protestantism. So I want you to notice what's happening. These three entities, Satan, Protestantism, and Catholicism, all have coming out of their mouths, all right, spiritualism, all right? And these spiritual forces, according to the next part of this verse, it says, for they are spirits of what? Of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world, and notice the operative word here, to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. In other words, the implication of this verse Is that the unifying forces between spiritualism, apostate Protestantism, and Catholicism? Is this this unity that comes about through this spiritualistic force that converges and brings them together in the end of time? The implication in Revelation chapter 16, I believe, is pointing to this new form of spirituality that was connived and formed at the heart of the Counter-Reformation to bring not only Protestantism back, but to bring all religions under one world banner. And it's to diminish a cognitive reflection of the Word of God for a spirituality that is based in Eastern mysticism. Here's where we are. It's said that we are living right now in a post-truth society on every level. Whether you talk about politics, whether you talk about religion, people are saying we can't even know the truth anymore. And quite frankly, individuals are tired of talking about propositions and ideas. We all want an experience. And so here's the convergence that's going to take place in the end of time. Now, the question is, what is biblical meditation? Biblical meditation is at the very heart of the Christian experience. Just to say that there's a false meditation does not mean that we should throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, look, there's no meditation at all. We shouldn't practice meditation. But here is biblical meditation. Psalms 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. What is the subject of David's meditation here in Psalms 119? It's the Ten Commandments. It's the Ten Commandments. Now, the implication of this, is this a cognitive intellectual reflection? Absolutely. In other words, the Christian experience does not mean that you turn your brains off and put it on autopilot. Biblical meditation is engaging reason, conscience in theological reflection upon the word of God that is biblical meditation to think about it and to reflect on it it is a cognitive experience now eastern meditation the premise of eastern meditation is to empty your mind biblical meditation is to fill your mind with the word of God and so you have the counterfeit and the true. Biblical meditation is at the heart of the Christian experience as depicted by the menorah. At the very base of the menorah where are the words of the Shema. This is something that we should think about all day long and it's all throughout Scripture, this concept of meditation. Psalms 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly nor stands in the path of sinners nor sits in the seat of the scornful but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates Day and night. This is the reflection of the Christian to think about heavenly themes in our minds over and over and over again. In other words, the Christian experience is not just Sabbath where we say, Oh, I guess I should think about spirituality today and all during the week. It's sports, it's the news, it's everything else. And then, Oh, I guess Saturday I need to think about God today. That is not the way the Christian experience is to be ideally. The ideal Christian experience is when we can come to the place where our favorite thoughts are about God. Amen? Do you want to come to that place? Where the favorite place that you want to go is to think about Jesus? I mean to think about him over and over again because he is so beautiful, that is where the Christian experience wants to lead us. And when you look in Patriarchs and Prophets, she writes how Enoch walked with God. And she points out that Enoch did not walk with God in a trance. In other words, this was not some mystical, out-of-body experience that was not cognitive. She says that Enoch walked with God After he had his son, and she says that the beauty and the revelation, because he was given revelation, of the sacrifice of Jesus and the love of God became his meditation all day long. And in his thought life, he thought about Jesus. He thought about God for hundreds of years that he walked to the very threshold of eternity. And God said, you might as well take the next step in. And he's in heaven right now. He, he crossed the barrier from this reality to the eternal reality, and it was in his thought life right here. The Bible says in the book of Genesis, right before the flood, it says that the thoughts of men were only evil continually. So God not only wants to reform our, our habits and our actions on a superficial level of what we do, God wants to reform our thought life and what we think about every day. Now, as we begin to wrap up here, I, if there's one book I recommend that you read every year, it's the book Desire of Ages. The book Desire of Ages reveals the beauty and the love of Jesus. And this book was given to me uh, when I went away to school uh, in academy, and it was our textbook for an entire year. Every person that came to this academy had to take this class, Life and Teachings of Jesus Christ, and we had to read the book Desire of Ages. Every paragraph, we would we would read it and write a reflection, a devotional reflection of that paragraph and That book changed my life. That book changed my life because as I saw the character and the beauty of Jesus, you you just become in awe and wonder as to who Jesus is. You ever come in contact with someone that is beautiful in character? That's what I found in Jesus Christ. And it became my reflection. And there's a quotation that has stayed with me from page 83, it would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour Each day in contemplation of the life of Christ, we should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. As we thus dwell upon His great sacrifice for us, our confidence in Him will be more constant, our love will be quickened, and we shall be more deeply imbued with His Spirit. If you're wondering what to do for a devotional exercise, I encourage you to go to the last moments of Jesus' life. And here is biblical meditation. Let each, uh, and let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. And as we visualize scripture in our minds, visualize Jesus and his character, We're told that we will be changed from glory to glory and from faith to faith. And she goes on in page 83. If we are Christ, our sweetest thoughts will be of him. How many of you want that today? How many of you want to say, Lord Jesus, I want Jesus to be my sweetest thoughts. The place that I love to go in every moment and opportunity I have. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for biblical meditation how biblical meditation lies at the very heart and soul of the Christian experience. And Father, we pray that Jesus, His character, and His love would become our favorite subject of meditation from day to day. That we would be changed from glory to glory, from faith to faith, and from day to day. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.